my Twitter profile says digital health believer. And that probably harks back to, you know, the it days wasn't when digital, yeah, <laughs> digital health was kind of, well, it wasn't very cool. It was science fiction almost. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm like, I'm a believer, you know, I believe there's something in this. And now you fast forward, you know, seven, eight years, and it is probably one of the hottest areas. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve in Digital Health, a podcast about innovations, leaders and opportunities in digital healthcare. My name is Beth Keneally and today I'm talking with Dr. James Dromey, a national leader in paediatric medical research and digital health innovation. From humble beginnings, James now resides in Melbourne, Australia as the Chief Operating Officer of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome, James, and thank you very much for joining us on Ahead of the Curve in Digital Health. It's a real pleasure to be chatting to such a leader in digital health innovation. Thanks, Beth. Great to be here. Awesome. Now, I understand that health innovation wasn't the most obvious path for you and that you started your life in different surroundings in Ireland. So can you tell us a little about how you ended up in this industry and in this world? Yeah, so I've been in Australia now for 17 and a half years came for two and came actually as an immunologist, a research scientist. And I think I got out too early, right? Because COVID made immunology very sexy. Mm. So got into immunology, came to Australia to do a postdoc. So a researcher with my lab coat on. I don't think they let me near one now, to be quite honest. And actually just got a love for translation and turning research into something that's of value, that creates impact. So I could see that as a researcher, while I didn't really want to do medicine, I didn't kind of like the idea of, you know, in necessarily the, the medicine pathway, I love the impact that research could create. So I was always interested in the discovery, the curiosity, the innovation, learning something new. But I really wanted to make a difference at the end. And so the type of work that I did was always quite what we would call applied or translational. And over the years, I had this opportunity to work with some amazing people. And one great example is a guy who started a company, one of the organizations I worked with, and I spent a year with him kind of learning the ins and outs of a startup. I'll be honest, it was a fairly brutal exposure to the startup biotech world in Australia many years ago. But there it gave me a real taste for actually how do you turn something from an early stage research you know, idea into something that's going to have a benefit to, to patients, to families, the community at the end. But look, even before that, I reckon if I wound back what is now 25 or 30 years, and if you'd asked me, what do you want to do when you're grown up? <laughs> I think I'm still asking myself that question now. You know, it's been a kind of a meandering course of curiosity is how I describe it. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm, the only son of a dairy farmer in Ireland. I had a very supportive family who said, you got to try university. And thankfully, I went down that course. And while I really enjoyed dairy farming, I think you know, the great experience I've had traveling from Ireland to London, different parts of Ireland to London, spent some time in France and then to Australia has just been incredible. But certainly it wasn't one where I said, when I grow up, I want to be, you know, I want to work in healthcare innovation, but it's certainly one that I've embraced and I've enjoyed. Awesome. And you touched on something there that's really interesting because something a lot of the researchers we work with, they find difficult is taking innovations beyond the lab and translating research into sustainable businesses. And it sounds like that was it a biotech startup experience you had. What were, you know, it can be a very frustrating experience for some, you know, I, I know the startup world is, is full of crazy highs and lows. So what were some of the challenges that you came up against? And what was some of the advice that you would give to other researchers that want to make that, take that plunge? Yeah, it's, look, it's been really interesting, I guess, now having lived in kind of two sides, one as a researcher and that lived experience and, and now more as someone who helps facilitate innovation and try and, you know, create a better way to translate your research into that ultimately impact. 
often which involves, you know, creating a startup or working with a commercial partner. You know, so I guess what I would say is that there's no right or wrong way. Um, and often, you know, it's been really interesting, the learnings, even through the E-Institute here, where at MCRI, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, we have this incredibly broad research base, right? And some of it's very public health, population health-based, has incredible impact. And I think that was highlighted with some of the work we've done during COVID and some of the policy that we informed at a state and federal government level. And we kind of look at that and I say, well, too many times, I think the sector in Australia focuses on commercialization only. Mm. And one of the reasons I got into digital health was because we saw that there was all this great insights from research that didn't necessarily, it wouldn't be suitable for a spin-out, wouldn't be suitable for venture capital investment, and is unlikely to attract a commercial partner in your standard commercialization kind of approach, but yet wasn't fully capitalized and wasn't, you know, it stayed in the walls of this amazing building in the heads of these amazing people who were talking to other research leaders. And so a big part was how do you take some of this amazing insights and make it available to all stakeholders who would benefit from it. And I think that's where digital in particular has had an incredibly powerful role. Look, what advice? So I think just coming back to your question, I think there's no right way. Uh, talk to lots of people. And I think the sector has, you know, matured dramatically. You know, it's been really interesting talking about digital health now versus even in 2013 when we started. And I worked closely with two of the founders in Curve kind of by accident, I guess, they were already doing some work here. But one of the things that I actually, it's funny, someone pointed out to me that my Twitter profile, which I very rarely use, my Twitter profile says digital health believer. Oh, And that probably harks back to, you know, the It wasn't believed. <laughs> yeah, digital health was kind of, it wasn't very cool. It was... Science fiction almost. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm a believer, you know, I believe there's something in this. And now you fast forward, you know, seven, eight years, and it is probably one of the hottest areas. So... Mm. I think the pathways to create that impact are so varied and there's so much opportunity now when you look at digital, you look at public health policy, and then you look at commercialization, working with commercial partners. And sometimes I think that the sector here in Australia hasn't quite realized that yet. And we're still mm. stuck in the old model of the commercialization one. And I think we've got to break that a little. But you did mention something really important, and that's sustainability. So we've also seen that a lot can be developed and we've learned this ourselves the hard way. You can develop a lot, you can make it available, but unless you've got that business kind of mindset and that sustainability plan and understand you know, who's going to fund it, who's going to pay for it, who's going to support it, you know, who's going to continue to improve it, it just won't survive. Absolutely. So you mentioned MCRI and ended up there in, was it 2012, 2013? Right, 2012. Yeah, August yeah. 12. So what was that transition like coming into this massive institute and taking on this big role that you have? Can you talk us through, you know, just hitting the ground running and what that journey has been like for you? Yeah, yeah. So I'll be honest, I actually, when I joined MCRI in 2012, I didn't know a lot about it. Mm. And I think the thing that struck me most was when I, even though I only worked in another research institute just a little bit down the road, what struck me was just the scale of what was here and this amazing environment of research institutes embedded within the Royal Children's Hospital, right? This, you know, specialist, huge, incredible pediatric tertiary hospital. And the benefits of having this almost access to the front lines of healthcare from the point of view of seeing the everyday problems in a healthcare setting, looking at how that extends out to the patient journey outside and that continuum of care was just incredible. But I'll be honest, when I joined first, having come from an immunology background where I was looking at things like drug discovery, vaccines, you know, kind of heavy formal IP rights and very kind of standard pathways to commercialization and pathways to impact, I was a little stumped, to be honest, thinking, how am I going to 
you know, coming in as head of commercialization at that point, how am I going to actually drive commercialization in an organization like this, where probably over half of it is more public health based? And really, that's where I guess really start to look at digital health as a great means, you know, an enabler, a medium of how you solve the problem or how you take something that exists, whether it be content or otherwise, and put it in a way that people can easily access and use. We've got lots of examples of that. I think we've over the years now created about 14 different products of over 200,000 users. It's using lots of trials, validated a lot across many countries in the world. So it's been a really exciting journey. So I guess that's how I felt was, how am I going to commercialize stuff? And I'm probably realizing more than anything that, coming back to my earlier comment, it isn't all about commercialization. It actually starts with impact. Impact's the driver. What difference is it going to make? In our case, how are we going to benefit children and families? I think commercialization is one method of getting there. I think some of our digital health products are not commercial, but they have enormous impact and they are sustainable. And, you know, we don't want to get hung up on one and not the other because it comes back to impact. And then I guess four and a half years ago, I took on the role of CEO. And I'd almost say I've taken a slight sabbatical from innovation with a bit of a heavy heart, but really starting to, you know, look at the organization more broadly. And that's been really exciting as we're starting to look at what's the next chapter going forward for us and the incredible growth we've had over the last four years. So what would you say were some of the key factors that have helped you over the time that you've been at MCRI to deliver success in innovation? And, you know, obviously it's not your key focus anymore, but what do you think helps digital technology and digital health to be successful? I think there are a few things. So I think, you know, in our case, we embedded Curve Tomorrow, and I think that was a real game changer for us. And it comes back to this incredible environment of, you know, researchers, you know, from lab, public health, this breadth of this incredible breadth of researchers working, you know, many who are clinically trained, working within the context of the Royal Children's Hospital, you know, mixing engineering, design, software development, you know, and then that kind of business mindset was just this magical mix, right? And we're naturally an innovative company, right? An organization. We've got about 1,600 people, staff and students, 65 different research groups working on everything from, you know, prenatal all the way to adolescent health. And so it was really about how do we capitalize on this opportunity with all of these amazing insights and discoveries and turn them into something tangible. And I think having a team like Curve embedded and put some, bringing in that external view, external Mm -hmm. skill set and bringing that almost structured innovation process thinking was very valuable. So that helped also the culture piece. So ultimately, and I think this has changed a lot again over the years, but ultimately researchers and thinking back is when I was a researcher myself, you were measured based on your publications. You know, can you track funding? It's publications. Now it's focused much more on, well, what are you doing about it? What's the impact you're going to create? We're not quite all the way there yet, but certainly it's shifted a lot. And so having that environment that we created around innovation helped drive that culture of saying, okay, our job doesn't stop at the end of a publication. And being the fact that we're already quite translationally minded as an organization, it just helped really ramp that up. Look, the other thing is, similar to bringing Curve in, was just bringing that external in, bringing the outside in. So we brought in a real mix of skill sets. So we had some entrepreneurs in residence of people who had started up companies, but some in health, some not in health, and just being, again, that fresh eyes, fresh kind of lens to things. And that really made a difference then because sometimes we kind of didn't know what we didn't know and they would see opportunities that we wouldn't necessarily see. That absolutely made a huge difference. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So there's a lady called Einar Sawyer, who's a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, 
we've developed a very close working relationship with. And Einor is just phenomenal, but, you know, very early on became an advisor to the innovation work that we're doing at the Institute. And, you know, it's kind of things like she, she always talks about digital is this enabler. And in fact, you know, we want to be careful that we don't immediately think of digital as the solution. And we need to keep an eye on what she calls the value to nuisance ratio. So are we introducing something that's actually going to increase nuisance for an end user often? Right. Mm. Okay. And have we got that valiance nuisance ratio? off? And, you know, I guess playing off of that, one of the things that we were doing was working in sleep and behavioral sleep and recognize that there is this opportunity. We've done these randomized controlled trials around some of these sleep interventions for young kids and obviously a hot topic for any parents mm-hmm. out there. As a new parent, I can confirm. There we go. <laughs> And, you know, we had all these interventions and we were thinking, what's the best medium to make these interventions available to parents like you and others? And we came up with some digital solutions where you could screen essentially to determine, you know, what's the behavioral issue and therefore what's the best intervention. And as we were working through it, one of the entrepreneurs and residents said, actually, I think our value to nuisance ratio is up. I was like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, you know, we're asking parents, we're saying this is your problem, but then we're asking them to come up with, you know, might be something around the child's coming up frequently after they go to bed, asking the mom and dad all the time. And so I said, you know, you have to actually create this bedtime pass, for example. You know, you get one bedtime pass per night. I said, no parent is going to be wanting to create a bedtime pass. We're already busy enough and exhausted. Why don't we make this into a story and create a series of books where we essentially are reading to the child at night and we're actually going through the intervention through the means of a story, so it's almost intervention. A physical object a rather physical than book. a digital app, which a lot of people, my first thought was, I imagine you built an app for that. That's right. There you go. So we've actually got an app and we've got a book. So we've gone back, I joke, we've gone back from, you know, digital therapeutics to paper-based therapeutics. <laughs> and and uh, we're just close to, to, you know, publishing these books now. So we've got a series of books which are essentially evidence-based, gone through randomized controlled trials, with interventions written in essentially to these stories and we've created a little character written into these stories that you read to your child at bedtime. Fantastic. I think that's just an example of outside in, lots of advice, lots of voices, different ways of thinking, stuff we'd never have done before. Well, that's fascinating because I wonder what's the pushback like for that from say the team that's like they've spent all this time and effort on this amazing digital app and then someone from the startup world, which is, it's very, you know, what's the Facebook motto? Move fast and break things. Yeah. That's a real spanner in the work. So how does that culture clash play out in real life when you're going from a just really agile, let's move, let's try something different to we've got a methodology, we need to take our time. What's that yeah, interaction like? It's actually really good. And I think the important thing being aligned, right? So yeah. it's really good now when we started, was there some friction? Absolutely. Yeah. Is there some friction now for sure? So there is absolutely a difference in cultures, right? So if we're coming in, like you said, you know, move fast, move quickly. But ultimately, you know, at the core of the Institute, it's all about evidence base. Mm -hmm. And so the validation piece is absolutely critical. So we, you know, we're going to have to make sure that it goes through that rigor. And so sometimes we do have to slow it down. In this instance, the sleep example was an easy one because it had already been through trials. And yes, I recall a few meetings where we're going, but hold on, is that's a terrible idea, actually. I think I recall saying at the time, you proved me wrong several times. You know, I just don't see that flying, but it, then it's the willingness to give it a try, to explore it. And ultimately, the clinical team really support it because for them, it's how do we take the work that we've done, that's, that we've gone to the trouble of validating And if we're now going to be putting this into the hands of people, we're going to help. And that in turn is going to reduce wait times in hospitals, et cetera. That's exactly what we want to do as an organization. 
So there can be a bit of tension, but I think we've seen over the years as well, there's much more alignment now between that need for validation, the regulation, and that kind of new startup break it, the agile kind of approach. And the two worlds are coming together, I think, in more alignment. Fantastic. So where do you see digital technology taking health from here? And that's, I asked that question in light of COVID-19, where it's it's made massive changes to things like telehealth and people's adoption of digital technology to enable healthcare. Where do you see it all kind of moving to? I think there's two parts. I think one is appetite and the other is urgency, yeah. right? So I think the appetite, you know, from everyone, myself included, with convenience of, you know, from telehealth still is just a phone call, but nonetheless, it's just so convenient. And I think mm. people have recognized that it's something they want to keep, right? So that's clearly going to massively influence and shape and put pressure on the need to change. And we've certainly already seen and experienced that. And I think following that, there's this urgency, right? There's like, well, we have to do this now. It really is this moment in time, I guess, around the value of digital I think what will be interesting to see is where we land if we were to fast forward five or six years. And I don't think we're going to be entirely digital. And many of the promises we had, you know, 10, 15 years ago aren't fully realized. I think the importance of the human interaction is still going to be there. And certainly the need to help people find and navigate their way through a system is still heavily required. But I think it's an incredible moment in time. And certainly as we're looking at it, the appetite Internally, externally, it's just mm. it's just fantastic to see. Yeah, I think it's really accelerated and it's put it on the map. I mean, the digital health sector is really interesting in Australia now. Mm. And I suppose that brings with it a lot of new challenges in that there's even more, you know, of a push to move into that discomfort, as you were saying, you know, that put a little bit of tension on that relationship between the startup and the need for innovation versus that need for slow and steady and evidence-based. But, you know, hopefully that's all a good thing. Absolutely. I think it's a great thing. And, you know, when I look at the maturity now of the digital health sector in Australia, and I think, you know, you look at something like And Health, which we've talked about Mm. in the past, the way in which that's come and evolved the digital health sector and brought those two worlds together. So how do you create these startups and try and use some of that startup methodology would have the rigor around the evidence base, the Mm. clinical validation you know, I think it's just incredible now having seen that evolve. And I think, you know, as a the sector in its own right and having a voice in its own right is incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. If you enjoyed hearing James's story and you're keen to hear what we talk about on our next episode, please like, subscribe or drop us a rating. We'll chat to you next month on Ahead of the Curve in Digital Health.